You are now listening to the all-new all new Shotgun Sports Podcast with your host, Justin Barker. We talk to shotgun shooters from all disciplines, world-class instructors, gun clubs, target setters, vendors, and industry-leading companies that fuel the sport. Fuel the sport. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast, leave us a review, and connect with us on social media. You can also catch our episodes on ShotgunSportsUSA.com. If you are looking to purchase Promatic Traps, give Rick Hemingway a call. Rick is the largest Promatic dealer in the country and can handle all of your trap needs. His team can provide new and pre-owned units and service that is second to none. And they also have a huge rental fleet, so no job is too big or small. Not only does Rick set and design sporting clays courses, but he also offers turnkey services for skeet, trap, and five stand. Contact Rick today at backwoodsquailclub.com or call 843-546-1466. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Shotgun Sports. And today on the show, we have a true icon in sporting clays. He shot his first clay target in 1972 and ever since has been truly dedicated to making the sport grow and challenging shooters every day with his target setting abilities. And I think this is pretty neat. He's been the official target setter for 23 national championships in San Antonio, over 10 U.S. Opens, and four world championships, as well as numerous state and regional tournaments. So with that being said, welcome to the show, Neil Chadwick. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you could come on. We've been talking about having you on now for a while, and um, we finally got around to it, and uh, you know, I'm ready to go. It's uh, I've heard your name a lot in conversation, and and I just kind of want to dig into to what someone of your caliber with target settings all about. What's going on? Well, well, for a start, we, we, we had three feet of snow last Thursday. Uh, up here, up here in New Hampshire, um, and that caught us out. That took me a day to dig out with the snowplow and the tractor, but we're back to normal now, Justin. Well, that's a good thing. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't three foot of snow here because I'd still be trying to dig it out. <laughs> yeah, you would. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how are you ready for the holidays? Everything going good for you? It's going good. Yeah, I think the holidays will bit be a little bit subdued uh this year you know with uh, nobody coming up um so it'll probably be uh, just us um like probably most people will be that's right same way here same way here so let's kind of let's kind of get into your story uh, i know you've been in this sport a long time um have you done a lot of cool things with the sport you know tell people maybe where you're from and how you got to where you are now okay well uh obviously you can tell i have an accent, although I don't think I've got an accent. Most people say I have. Originally from the UK, a little town up in near Cambridge in in the UK. Uh, grew up on a farm, uh, although my parents weren't farmers. My grandfather was a farmer, and uh, I guess it was 1965 when uh, 
when I got my first shotgun or when I was allowed to have my first shotgun, mm-hmm. which was a 12-gauge side-by-side, double trigger, choke full and full, typical sort of hunting gun. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, would go out in the fields and shoot wood pigeons and shoot rabbits and pheasants. And typically we ate what we shot. Um, so, you know, and that was just a sort of a, a general pastime. And then it was uh, it was in 1972 when we had what we call uh, a young farmers event. Young farmers is probably the same as 4-H over here or um, FFA, I think it's called, yeah. Justin. Yeah, FFA, um, right. Uh, and they put on a little events, get some uh, machines together and throw a little bit of uh, like a 50-bird uh, shoot. Well, that was my first introduction to uh, – to sporting clays and i guess that's where it all started because i really haven't stopped since so um <laughs> like you say yeah once you, long, once you get started water. once you get started it's hard to stop isn't it yeah it is it is so um from that point on uh you know we could shoot typically over there apart from the english open uh the british open and some of the major shoots, the shoots over there were 50 bird re-entry shoots. Um, and they would be put up on some farmer's land and taken down again next day. And like I've told this story <clears throat> many times, on a good weekend, we could shoot three different 50 bird shoots in one day on the Saturday and three 50 bird shoots Again, on the Sunday, you've got to remember that the UK is really uh, not that big. So a matter of, you know, 20 minutes, half an hour drive, we could be from one shoot to another shoot. Plus the fact we could re-enter, you pay your money, and typically it it was for little trophies or something like that. But nevertheless, the experience and the different target presentations, um, it was just a steep learning experience for me to shoot uh, to shoot all the different presentations. You know, talk talk about that for a minute, Neil. What kind of different target presentations did you have back then? Well, everything. Uh, you know, you you get different target presentations. Typically, and it's typically in the UK, target presentations would be set in an open field. Uh, if it was at the end of the harvest, it might be on a stubble field where they'd, uh, you know, harvested the wheat or the corn. Um, some of them would be in uh, uh, covered areas, trees. I'm not going to say forest because we haven't got forests over there, but uh, wooded areas along hedgerows or something like that. So really we had the really everything that you could get from open fields to in the tree shooting. So like I say, it was an experience. And then I used to about 75, I started helping a couple of the guys out that were setting these shoots up and just helping them move machines, you know, wrenching for them, um, learning what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And of course, back then, remember that, you know, the majority of machines were hand machines, hand cocked machines, uh, something like a fairy three-quarter cock or a le- uh, fairy lever machine. Mm-hmm. Um, 
very few automatics, although there were. Uh, typically then they would be uh, Laporte machines. Uh, Ferry had uh, not battery-operated machines. Their machines that they currently had at that time uh, ran on mains voltage, 240 volts. So, um, you know, you could set it up with generators and so forth like that. So that was my my really my beginning introduction to sort of target setting right so did that for a few years still i mean i was still then now getting into competitive shooting shooting the uh the major shoots as well as the weekend shoots plus the fact we could go on a wednesday night after work and shoot another fifth bird shoot on a wednesday or a thursday so every weekend i'm going to say probably without fail, I was shooting somewhere, you know. Right. Um, and then it was about oh, 78, 79. And funnily enough, and this is where uh, sort of um, I got to know some American personnel. In that particular area of the country where I lived, we had quite a few uh, American Air Force bases, and, uh, and and some of the people listening will know them as Lake and Heath, Milden Hall, Bentwaters, Alconbury, um, Upper Hayford. You know, um, somebody introduced me to skeet shooting. Right. Well, <laughs> and believe it or not. I was so tight then, I hadn't even bought another gun. I was still using the side-by-side uh, full-choked hunting gun, I guess you'd call it, to 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 shoot skeet. Well, because, you know, the Americans being American, you can't shoot skeet with that. <laughs> oh, what, why? Me thinking it was against the rules, you know. Right. So I said, why? Well, well you, you won't hear anything. You can't shoot skeet with full choke. Well, well let's have a go. So I shot 20 or 21. They went, oh, okay. Nevertheless, then I got into buying a skeet gun and so forth like that. So, um, you know, that's that's really how I got into it during the 70s. And uh, uh, like you say, it's carried on since then. Yeah. So you shot that same gun all those years. And, and, I did. And you got that when you was a kid. I did. And I still have it. Really? Yep. That's neat. Yep. So um, what gun are you shooting now? How are you progressing the guns? What do you shoot now? I don't shoot now. I stopped. Oh, golly. I stopped really, uh, really shooting probably back in 95. Okay. Um, but that's another part of the story from the, from the side-by-side. Um I went to a Maruku Japanese Browning, and I, it's very similar to, uh, since I've learned, that it's very similar to an A1 Browning over here, uh, flat rib, wide rib. And um, I probably shot five or six of those guns and wore them out um, and always kept with the same gun because I got on well with it. Um, towards the end, actually, while I was here, um, I did go over to a uh, Beretta 682 uh, with a pigeon stock on it because that's a little bit heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's that's what sort of, if I was to shoot now, that's probably what I would shoot. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so you're, you know, and you're in the seventies and are you in the, where, what clubs are you at over there in the, in the UK at this time? Are there any? Well, see that there, there's not typically many, well, there, there's a, most of the clubs now over there have closed down. Okay. Um, it didn't take long, uh, for the noise abatement people to come up and go, uh, you know, we can't live here. We've only just moved in. The gun club's been here 50 years, but we've just moved in next door and we don't like the sound of shotguns. Um, one of them, one of the, one of the premier grounds was, uh, 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 Mike Reynolds was the owner mid Norfolk. And that was probably an hour and a half drive from me, Cambridge up there. And I always remember that place, great targets. That's where I shot my first FICAS competition. Um, And I got uh, towards the end of the 90s, he got closed down. Wow. You know, uh, John Bidwell's place, uh, High Lodge. He was on the ground there. Now, I'm not sure that he got closed down, but the ground that he's on now, he has, you have to shoot from within a soundproof box per se. It's a, it's a shooting stand that's covered over the top sides and back with soundproof material. So that absorbs most of the sound. That's how bad it's got over there. Really? Yep. But the- and of course, now they, now they shoot. Uh, now they've changed the regulations. They shoot over there on what's called a twenty-eight day rule. <clears throat> twenty-eight day rule basically says you can only shoot on that piece of ground once every twenty-eight days, unless you're a commercial. I mean, there's still shooting grounds over there, of course. You know, West London and uh, Bisley and uh, Birdie's ground, Churchill's ground. They're all well-established grounds, uh, and there's there's more of them. Um, but so the way they get around that is, you know, take take twenty traps out, set up a a ten-station course, and then take it down at the end of the day and move it to another field. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've never heard. Of, I mean, the guns pointing out the front, but they want everything else covered. Yep on on particularly on John Bidwell's ground. Yep. Wow. So, so I'm assuming all that craziness made you want to move to the U S no, that didn't make me move to the U S. Um, I moved to the, to the U S in, uh, 91. I'd worked for IBM, uh, the computer people, uh, for 20 years. And, um, well, I'll tell you the story in, it would have been 89. I was shooting the world championship FITAS in Larabo in the middle of France. And uh, I was squatted, and you'll never guess who I was squatted with. I was squatted with Andy Duffy <laughs> and John Kruger. Okay. No, I, I, of course, I knew they were Americans, but I didn't know. I didn't know who they were at that time, of course, you know. Right. And um, and we had a great time. I mean, we just had fun. I think also, uh, I think, now I can't remember who was on that team. I want to say George Hopkins was on the team at that time as well. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so, you know, and you can make really good friends shoot, and you know that. And, of course, Andy and uh, Kruger said, oh, well, you've got to come over. Come, 
come over to the States. And uh, I said, well, yeah, okay. You know, right. but we stayed in touch. And I think it might have been the same year, if not the next year. Um, I came over and we shot one of George Hopkins' very first shoots. Um, it wasn't a big pig, I don't think. Um, but anyway, so uh, went to George Hopkins' place and, well, I couldn't shoot for shit. I mean, I'd never seen targets so close and so floppy. And I went, oh. So anyway, suck it all up, you know. So, um, so the targets you used to shoot over in the UK were a lot faster and further. Is that what you're saying, basically? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the difference, of course, over there is targets are uh, 110 millimeter as opposed to 108 over here. Right. And there, there is no doubt that they are uh, a little bit harder. Um, so you can throw them with more spring. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I was, you know, shoot, used to shooting a good 40-yard target with plenty of spring. Um, but, um, you know, I always remember at George's place there, it was about, yeah, he might have had a distant one on there, but probably 25 yards would have been a, a you know a good target but again with no speed and dropping off at the end of the flight so um so that's how i initially came over um and then uh and at the same time of course ibm were laying off probably i, I can't remember something like 150,000 people worldwide at the decline of when they were getting out of the pc business and so I took uh, the golden handshake and moved over primarily to sell um, shotgun ammunition um, made in Cyprus called Victory Ammunition, mm -hmm. uh, which was a really good shell, um, but difficult to compete with the Winchesters and the Remington and the Walmart specials and stuff like that, you know. Right. Um, so, but so that's sort of how, how I ended up. Uh, moving over in 91 wow so when you moved over here doing that did, yeah. you, did you know that you still wanted to set targets and, and 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 do what you do now no no that was the that was the furthest i mean i was busy yeah. selling trying to sell the victory ammunition yeah and um and got to know people locally. At that time, I lived in uh, sort of, I don't know whether you'd call it upstate New York, but uh, by um, just north of the city by about, uh, I guess, 50 miles. Right. And there was one club that we used to shoot at there, and um, it was called Stonegate, owned and operated by by uh, Jimmy Ferrari. Um and he would put out pheasants and raise dogs and stuff. Anyway, so he got into clay target stuff. And uh, we we used to go there and shoot, shoot there probably most weekends. And um, a funny story. So he comes up to me one day and he goes, you know, the people are not coming back to shoot targets. I said, well, no, I, I know why. He said, you do? I said, yeah. I said, uh all your he had all handsets at the time. I said, all your handsets are concreted into the ground. Yeah. He said, so? I said, well, you never change anything. Oh. oh. Oh, okay. So they were on 
wooden sort of like four by fours, concrete in a hole in the ground. I got chainsaw and chainsawed them all off. And funny thing is, he had the seats. He had the seats in a barn. I said, "Let's put let's put these on a put the traps on a, on the seat." And I, they they were probably they were probably Lincoln handsets at that time. You know that you could bolt onto a onto a seat. Mm-hmm. I said, "Let's get the seats out and bolt them on, and we'll just change it around." Well, that sort of changed it around drastically for him, and that then got. <laughs> turned his business around and that sort of started it and in the same year about 95 um just into pennsylvania there was a guy that had set up a five stand mm-hmm. <laughs> and um people got to know about that and they went set five stand and typically he knew nothing about clay target shooting he'd bought the old bird brain five stand controller where it was a pc with a printer and you would type the person's name in and you'd press a green i'm making it up a little bit you'd make you press a green button for a hit and a red button for a miss and um but it was a proper five stand array form and five stand job you know again i had to the target. <clears throat> so uh, And matured into, well, why don't you take this over? Well, okay, what do you want me to do? Well, you know, you you take it over and, and I'll take 20% of profit or whatever. Right. I said, well, if I've got one five stand, he had six or eight machines, I can't remember. So I still had, uh, what would it be? Probably 20 old fairy machines in storage in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so I arranged to ship the, those over with a big generator that generated 240 because they were 240 volt machines. And, um, I set up three feet house parkours, just three, cause that's all I had the machines for. Um, and his, I think we had still had his or that five stand going as well, you know, well, that became very popular because I would put typical FITAS targets on. Now, at that time, everybody thought FITAS targets were harder. And uh, so all the local people, they'd go and shoot their, you know, 95, 96 out of 100 in the morning and come over and shoot some real targets in the afternoon at my place. <laughs> and um, so the word, the, word, the word got around and we actually held a FITAS selection shoot in 95 i think it was and um it went off well uh, you know only on three layouts i think we doubled it up so it was 150 bird shoot we probably had 60 maybe 60 entries something like that but people came in from far and wide and it, well to a lot of them it was the first experience of fitas that they'd had I always remember one guy he flew up from florida and he said, oh, yeah, you know, my average is 94. Oh. I said, don't expect to shoot 94 here. Well, I think he probably hung up his gun after that, uh, <laughs> which was unfortunate because he probably shot something like a 72 or a 73. Right. But anyway, the shoot-off went off great. Um, the unfortunate thing about that property is it was the only privately owned property in the forestry owned area 
So the forestry uh, people, or the state forestry people or federal, one of the two, were always going to take it back. We operated it for about two years and then uh, they come, the, the feds came in and said, okay, we, we need this property. It's going to be part of this flood, flood plain for this dam that we're building, some, some bullshit, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so we had to get out of that. Um, but by that time, of course, I'd set targets at um, – Probably the first one was 96 at River Road. I think that's Bruce Basotti's place. That was an open. I didn't set the sporting targets there. I think I set the FITA. So basically 96 was when um, sort of people asked me to go and set targets sort of all over the place. Really? And what did what did you see? when you were setting targets that would fool people back in 96? Well, <sighs> we were, and we still do it today, but uh, anybody that shoots the, the targets that I set um, and everybody that helps me set the machines, they know that we're going to put spring on the machine. We're going to increase the speed at which the target is thrown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always have these arguments with people. I would much prefer to shoot a target that is under power, i.e. it's got speed on it and traveling in a relatively straight line than something that really has got no speed on it and flops off and hits the ground 20 or 30 yards out the trap. Right. So I stuck to my principles on that, and I still do today, um, that I will – throw the type of targets that I would like to see thrown and everybody else does the same thing. And I'm not saying it's wrong, but I just tend to throw um, targets that are a little bit uh, faster, not necessarily more distance. Um, uh, and that's only sometimes, um, but you can still catch people out with other tricks Um but anybody that shot my targets, they'll know. I have people come at me and say, you know, I shot your targets wherever it was, and I knew they were your targets. I didn't even know you were there, but I knew they were your targets. Um, so um, that's what that is. Yeah, yeah. That's so. Talking about target setting, what you know, back when you're talking about, you started doing it in the '70s and '80s there wasn't a whole lot of movement in those traps, like right to left, as far as leaning, leaning them, correct? That, that's true. That, I mean, there was nothing. Um, you couldn't tilt a machine, like I say, unless you put a block under one side. Most machines, well, yeah, most machines at that point were really not on um, carts. They were not easily movable. They were either on a pallet uh, you know, bolted down. We still see that today. Um, all the machines that I bought over from the UK, they were all on uh, wooden pallets. And if I wanted to put a little bit of lean on them, we'd have to lift it up at one side and put some breeze blocks or blocks of wood to to just to give a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of a lean to the machine to either show top or bottom on the target. And that's and and that's you know, if you talk about that today, you just loosen bolts and slide the machine. And, and, it's so easy. It's tilt. they all do it. Yeah, they all do it now. It's so easy. You know, an impact wrench and uh, within 
you know, 30 or 40 seconds, you can get the machine to somewhere where you want it to be um, for the for the presentation that you want to throw. Well, how much more trickery can you put on people with the ones that tilt now versus like back, you know, back then? Is it a whole lot more or just a little bit more because you really improvised and made it work back then? Is it just I mean, it's it's infinitely more. OK. I mean, the 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 angles that you can get now on these machines, uh, it would be unheard of back 70s through to the 80s. Um some of them lean over so far. I still look at them and go, "How the hell do they still work?" You know, <laughs> to feed to feed a target and give me a constant uh, to give me a constant presentation the way I want it. Um, yeah, it's it's really it, it's really changed the whole game. Yeah. All right. So you've sat. Do you still set targets at the nationals, Neil? Yeah. Just uh, we did this last one this last uh, uh, October. Okay. All right, so when you walk up to the – and you're at the Nationals, okay, and you you walk to Station 1 on the green course or whichever one you set, if you set them all, how do you know which – how you want that presentation to look? How do you lay that course out to where it's like, okay, this is going to be – this is going to be challenging. It's a national championship. What's your first thought on the first station when you go to lay targets out? <laughs> is it like I'm going to trick all these people? They're going to shoot a 50 on this course? or uh, what, no. do you, what do you think? No. 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 Okay, so back up a little bit. Okay. I've been on that 640 acres for the past 23 years. Right. Okay. Um, as the, For the past oh, eight or nine, I've, I've helped organize stuff, get the different target setters in, um, uh, help uh, lay out, help Pete lay out the course where, where different courses are going to go. So Immediately, I know that yellow, red, green, orange, I know exactly when that where they're going to go. And I know all the positions where the or where the shooting stands will be. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, this past year in October, I set the green course. I probably had 90 percent of that already set up in my mind before I even set foot on the property. So that so, and I know where you're trying to go with that machine. You're gonna you're saying, okay, you, you know, how do you know what you're gonna do? Well, in that particular instance, I know the trick comes at nationals is 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 the other target setters, and we get some good guys in Joe Skull, uh, Stevie Knoll, you know, Jason Menke from Briley. Um, my job then becomes looking to see what they're doing to make sure that we've got an even balanced set of targets that's worthy of a national championship. Right. So going back to your original question, first of all, you want to drive around and know exactly where all your stands are probably, and I say probably because they can be moved unless they're set, but usually can be moved is to know exactly where all your stands are going to be. And then once you know that, is to look at the safety aspect of it. Obviously, you don't want to be putting a target on that shoots towards or close to or endangers anything else. And typically, it doesn't, but you've still got to watch that. Um, shot fall is a big can be a big problem i've been to some major shoots where you're shooting on one stand and you get peppered with shot from another stand 
280, you know, 280 yards. So safety, safety is a big concern. Um, so, you know, you set out, you know, uh, you, you have a rough idea of where your stands are going to be and whether it's 12 stations, 15, you, you know, make sure that you've got plenty of room. Typically, it's going to be tight in some spots. But then you can you can stand in the area and look at the terrain you've got to play with. Is it an open field? Are there any bushes there? Is there any mounds of earth? Does it drop off? Can I shoot below my feet? Um, is there a hedgerow? Is there a line of trees? Does the ground drop off? And typically then I can look at that and set up probably in my mind four or five different sets Um to target presentation that's what i'm I'm talking about where you can then immediately start to put the machines out where you want them and adjust them um and i'll typically throw two or three targets off that look at the line from the machine before i even go back to the um uh, the, the shooting stand <laughs> and we'll typically do that for all the stations um and then once it's once the machines are in place and I've got a few targets in them, then I can go back along the stands and then adjust each target accordingly to show what the presentation eventually might be on that stand. Um, to get a balanced set, uh, you know, I see, I see it all too often, one, well, somewhat often where, um, somebody will set a stand and and that it's done and they don't look at it again it's um uh, you've got to look at the whole lot um as you go along you you can't sort of go okay i'm going to set a stand and then okay well okay i've done one now i've got to go to two and a lot of people think it's it's a race it's not mm-hmm. you've got to look at the whole lot so at nationals you know, I've got, I look at 40 stations of sporting clays to make sure that it's fair, balanced, nothing is over the top, obviously looking still again at the safety uh, aspect of it. Um, you know, um, and we're fortunate that nationals in as much as a rotation does not need to be filled during a rotation, uh, but a lot of shoots you do. So, you know, can I position a machine where I don't have to shut down two stands or whatever it might be either side to go and fill a machine? You can't always do it, but it's something to consider just so that you keep a smooth running operation when the shoot is in, uh, is in, uh, is going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So speaking of setting targets, talk about something for the, the new target setters that are coming up. You know, what is the single best piece of advice that you could give them? Well, well. First of all, you've got to know who your targets for. Mm-hmm. You can be a a, a club, what I call a club setter. You know, for your everyday business. Well, what you set for your club is going to be different than you set for a competition. As a club owner. I want my customers to have a good time. I want them to break targets. I want them to come back. Um, if you set your courses too hard, you're going to put some of those people off. Right. So, so it, first of all, as a target setter, 
know know your target audience. You know, obviously, if you get into a monthly tournament, you can step it up a little bit. Uh, if you move up into regionals, you know, that's a little bit more. U.S. Open, perhaps a little bit more. And the nationals, a little bit more than that, you know more targets that are in the course if it's a hundred bird course you've got a hundred birds if it's a 200 bird course you've got them you've got more opportunity to do different things because you've got 200 targets rather than 100 targets so take all that into consideration the the key would be also know your equipment um you know most machines now, everybody, all the machine manufacturers have caught each other up. And um, like we just said, you can lean them left or right. Some machines do not need, do not like to be leaned to the right because you're leaning it away from the arm. A lot of the manufacturers now have got a brush in there so that you can lean it away from the arm and the target doesn't move away from the arm. Tilting it to the left, the target falls from the carousel onto the throw plate and if it moves, it moves into the arm so that your left side is um, is the safer side to lean it, put it like that. Yeah. So let's, uh, you know, thinking about different target presentations, um, I think a lot of a lot of people go over the top. You've got to look at your your targets, however you set them in whatever terrain that you've got, of course, you've got the opportunity to either set a report pair or a true pair. Mm -hmm. A report, a true pair can be a lot more difficult than a report pair by definition because the second target doesn't come until you've fired your first shot. True pair, they're both in the air together. So think about that. Don't sort of... Don't separate your targets too much. Don't have one, you know, shooting off to the right and one shooting off to the left and throw them as a true pair. Always keep in mind to give your shooter ample time to take the target. Right. Don't make him, don't, you know, don't make him rush. Don't throw targets through small gaps so that you can't, so that they do not have time to get off a second shot and i'm not saying that they're going to shoot a second shot at it but you know some of your competitors are going to perhaps be a little bit slower in movement than a younger guy and so a young guy can more or less take it straight off the arm before it gets through the gap an older guy like me um, might need a little bit more time and i pull the trigger just as it disappears through the gap so that that type of that type of thing think about how are you going to throw the targets? You know, don't make them too hard. Yeah. Don't, you know, and I don't know whether it's sort of just the way. We're, now, I'm not saying don't throw hard targets, but don't make them too hard. Because if you make it too hard and you can see that people are not going to have a good time. Yeah. Do, do you ever learn anything as far as target setting for maybe a new target setter this this come out and started setting targets do you ever learn anything from somebody new you learn all the time yeah every time you set targets i learn i'm continually learning now you got to bear in mind a lot of my experience came from when i was shooting competition i probably shot all the different countries in europe um overseas um 
So I was exposed to a tremendous amount of different type and presentations of targets. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I typically, you know, if I'll learn from somebody that's new, and we have new guys come down and set targets at nationals, um, and they might do something, I go, wow. That's pretty good. I like that pair, and I that'll stick in my mind. And if the opportunity comes up, I might set something similar further down the road. You know. Yeah. But there's the, and I tell the guys now that help uh, that come to nationals, and they're all experienced guys, you know. And it's just, uh, you know, we've got a lot of people have got into the habit of throwing all orange targets, and. Um, and I tell the new guys that come uh, to help us, you know, they'll throw an all orange, that's orange all over the top and orange underneath, which you want to throw if you're going to keep everything below uh, the tree line or the hedgerow. They'll, and you, if you're facing south, don't throw belly towards the shooter. And I go, why? Well, Okay, you set the machine up in strong sunlight, the the target, the clay itself, throws such a shadow underneath it that the underneath side of an orange dome or an orange target, not orange dome, looks so dark that sometimes it can be difficult to see. So if you want to throw an all-orange target and you want to throw it from the left-hand side, throw dome. If you want to throw it from the right-hand side, throw dome. Don't ever throw all orange towards the shooter if you're facing south. Now, if you're facing north, it's a little bit more forgiving in bright sunlight. So it's just little bits and pieces like that that um, that, that that new guys can learn. You know, the same as then, you can't always get away from it, what we call strobing. Mm -hmm. A lot of bomb clubs are set up in the woods. And, uh, and you know, and you've, you've shot targets where you go, damn, that's difficult to see because it's flashing on and off as you throw it through the tree line underneath the tree canopy. Right. With, you know, with the strong, if that's what you've got, there is really, there's really no way around that if you have to use that type of cover. One trick is instead of throwing a fast target in that type of environment, throw a really slow target. Um, and it will appear, it will still strobe, but it will appear better. Yeah. If you follow me. Oh, you yeah. Know. yeah. And I would assume you'd want to throw it across and not away on a strobing target. It just wouldn't, I would guess. Both, if you're under the trees, you know, it's still going to cause problems with the strobing effect. And it's, um, it's just one of those things that, you know, and everybody's got, where they throw them in trees, you can't you can't get out of that fact. But I've seen it where people will throw targets at a fairly good spring, and um, you can't see it. I mean, you could see it, but it, you can't, if you understand me. Right. Slowing the target down in that environment makes it a little bit easier to see. Is there a different a color that's better to use in strobing, in a strobing effect, or in, in atmospheres where there's you know? It really depends on the light. If you're, if you've got direct sunlight above you, um, 
really no matter what type but what color you're still going to get that on off effect right uh, because because the shadows are so sharp um and there's there's really no way out of it especially if some of these what i call them alleyways up the trees are fairly narrow the wider the the wider the opening, the better it is because you've got more light coming through to to, to uh, illuminate the area. Okay, yeah. Um, if you were to, um, you know, I've kind of going back to nationals a minute. If you were to set your course, yeah, and you ride around to the other colored courses. Do you yeah. ever do you ever run into yourself saying that kind of looks like my target? I mean, they kind of look similar. Do you ever run into that? And what do you do if if you do? Yeah, uh, it's funny you should say that. Typically, it does not. Huh? <laughs> it, it, no, it typically it doesn't. I mean, um, <laughs> I mean, you would just assume. You know, all of you have been setting targets together forever. You would just assume. All right, he's going to set this this course over here. And I'm going to set this one over here. And, and when it all comes together, surely you've got some of the similar targets on the same courses. It's got to be. Well, they, yes, they could be similar, but I, between us, we've never changed a target because it looks similar to a target on another course that somebody else has set. Okay. Now we do get the situation because we rotate around, you know, sometimes I'll drop out of setting a main at nationals and i I'll do cake up. I like doing cake up. Um, cake up too, by the way, that's a, that's a great, if you ever go to nationals, you need to shoot cake up. I mean, some, you know, that's, that's really cool. What we, what we do run into and I, because I can remember the targets that I've set in the various different places. And, uh, for example, you know, I'll be looking at Joe skulls and they'll explain to me what he's doing. And, and I won't say anything, you know, I'll say, but I'll think to myself, Damn, that's real close to the target I set in that hole two years ago, because you get to you get to you get to a point where you go to where the cage is, and you sort of always want to put your what what first comes to you is usually your best um, set. Uh, and Joe Skull does it all the time. He's real close to me in what we like to set, um, and a number of times, and then he'll go. You know, I think you had something like that in this hole two years ago. I said, yeah, I did. But but, but we don't change it. It was two years ago, you know. Are you talking about a hole in the, on the K-Cup? Because there's one no, there's one place on the, on the K-Cup where you couldn't set but just a, a couple things, and that would be it. <laughs> yeah, around the K-Cup. Around the, K <laughs> the uh, you know, you know where that K-Cup is, don't you? Yeah. Okay. Back in... 90 whenever it was 96 i set the nationals around that course that was the whole nationals course around there hmm. can you believe that no <laughs> yeah kick up's always fun i always try to have a little bit of fun um this one was just it, this one went perfect you know we'd all been shut away and uh, uh people were anxious to get out and so i i i set it I set it to shoot a hundred straight. Well, of course, Corey Cruz did. Right. You know, um, 
And what we do at nationals is that all the target setters, when we look at the targets for safety and everything like that, and so that everybody else gets a flavor for what everybody else does, all the target setters, we call it vetting the targets, we'll go and look at all the targets, every single target. And um, so there's five or six of us there uh, throwing targets and we get to the end and they go, wow, well, I think somebody could shoot 100 straight. I said, I think they could as well. And there was a couple of 99s, and yes, there was 100 straight. But the interesting thing on that one, just, Justin, was, you know, I'd heard complaints of, um, and I forget where the shoot was, and it no matter where it was, but they, they had um, only two scores above 90 at one of these shoots. So I, I, so I wanted to make it easy. I wanted to make it fun. Out of uh, 1,340 shooters on the uh, on the on the K Cup, I had 182 scores of 90 and above. I thought that was pretty amazing. I mean, you still had to, they, they were, you still had to shoot them. There was some pretty technical stuff on some of them, you know. But I thought that was pretty good shooting. Yes. I was gonna. Now, I was gonna ask you if you looked at the target at the scores to determine how hard the course was. Like, oh, all, all, all the time. Right. You know, I, and it's funny because take the take that K Cup for example. Um, obviously the high score was a hundred. There was hundred and eighty plus in the nineties. Guess what the low score was. At nationals, there's no telling what it, I've seen people shooting the teens, so I have no on, clue. On that K Cup was 18. Wow. Yeah. So you know, and and I know everybody looks at the all target sets, look at their scores and so forth like that. But um, that I can't. I've got no excuse for somebody shooting 18. Um, and maybe they were, um, obviously they were a new shooter. It wasn't, you know, and maybe they were just, you know, with their buddy or it might have been a wife. I don't know who it was. It, it, that doesn't matter. But still to shoot 18 sort of on a course like that, you know, as a course setter, you've got to really disregard the top scores and the bottom scores and look to see where the where the middle of the course is um you know and i had so many people come up to me and said hey we just love k cup it was just fun we broke targets and you can hear them hooting and hollering and it was just it it, it was just a it was a fun course you know and a lot of people said that yeah do you would you rather set or you don't have to say would you rather but what do you enjoy setting more uh like a, a sporting course like a 15 station sporting course or a, or a FITAS parkour? Uh, FITAS. Is it just because there's so much variation there that you can do with people moving? Yeah. You know, um, the, I've always preferred to shoot FITAS. Um, and I, you know, gone are the days of the, uh, Old style FITAS, it's now new style, as you you probably only ever shot. New, no, we would have shot old style, where you'd go out and shoot 25 on three pegs. Right. When I first started, you know, you'd have you'd have you'd probably get in a in a truck and you'd go out to some remote area and th they'd set it up and you could shoot 360 degrees. 
So you could have one target jump out in front of you and then turn around and shoot behind you. You had to tell the referee which way round you were going to turn. That was a rule. You had to tell the referee, I'm going to turn round to the left or I'm going to turn round to the right. And the rest of the squad would get down and you'd move your gun barrel over the top of their heads. <laughs> That's classic. That's classic. That. Sounds like that. That's all that bit more dangerous. No, not not really, because there's sort of a, the six of you and the referee, you know. Um, and of course, uh, things changed when they changed to new style. Uh, you know, we lost uh, we lost some of the um, what would you call it? Some of the classic, some of the old. Fitas, you know, you went out there and there was four or five machines in front of you. You didn't move. So you didn't learn from those shots. Old style Fitas, where you had three pegs, you'd, you'd look at a target, you'd shoot the target, two shots at the single. You'd go, okay, you'd look to see where the other pegs were and you go, oh, okay, let's see what he's doing. That's going to be a little bit more difficult from peg three. I'm on peg one and it was fairly straightforward. I get over to peg three. That's going to be a lot more difficult, you know. So you'd make a mental note of obviously where the trap was. Where was the target landing? You know, so uh, um, to shoot now just off of one peg, um, it loses some of the um, it loses some of the aura of the old style classic fitash, you know. Yeah, yeah. So being a target setter in either task or or whatever you're setting for. Um, what is the most common mistake you see shooters make in reading those targets? <laughs> That's a good question. That's a good question. Well, let's look at, let's start off by looking at some of the ways I can catch shooters out. Now I've got to say, I've got to tell you that, you know, the 30 years I spent here and a lot of those years setting targets, the, uh, the American shooters are now number one in the world. Mm-hmm. When we started back in the early 90s, let's say the first uh, world championship over here at Akimo Mountain, um, a lot of Americans there, Americans did not meddle at all in anything okay. because they weren't used to shooting those types of targets, you know. Right. Um, over the years, now – with the all the shooters that we've got, and there's some amazing shooters. I mean, just amazing. The Americans now are the dominant force, both in FITAS and sporting clays, in my opinion. And it's been, it's really been quite amazing for me to watch and be part of that as we've progressed through the years, you know? What do you think got them there, Neil? Well, <laughs> the... the the growth in the sport, and it's still growing at a tremendous rate, the growth in the sport over the last, well, let's say 30 years, you know, since 90, um, has been amazing. There's so many people shooting that um, there are so many people with natural ability. If we look, you know, when back before 1990, You'd see that uh, Great Britain, if you look down the list of winners, the Great Britain dominated, dominated the FITAS World Championships. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think everybody would agree with that. You know, after a chemo, the first one after a chemo was uh, well. Let's go. Let's go back. Do you know the name Bud Wolf? I don't know. Okay. Um, in 1997, in Sun City in uh, South Africa, he won the champion super veteran class. And he was one. Did he beat Bonnie McLaurin to it? That was the first year that uh, super veteran was introduced to uh, the FITAS. And after that, now these are all super vets, so, if, uh, you know, right? After that, it was Gene Sears. After that, it was Tom Sebring. Um, Ray Newman, another name that I shot with a lot of the time. Uh, Bill Wool, he's from down in Florida. Um, Gus McFadden. And then old Joe Candy, he he won it three years on the trot. So you can see as you look through some of the the, the winners after the 90s, after early 90s, how the uh, American shooters now become a little bit more dominant up to where they are today. You know, I think, like I say, dominating the sport. You think it's because of the target setting that they have seen, like example from, from you, bringing targets that maybe they hadn't seen before over here and them shooting them that way had something to do with it from them getting better? It, I think that as the t- people that set targets got better at setting targets um, uh, from the early days, obviously that helped because it prepped people for it prepped people for the type of targets that they're going to see should they travel overseas. Right. Yeah. That's you what know. I was trying to say. Right. Now, case in point, it was the um, uh, English last, was it last year at EJ Churchill? Mm-hmm. And he still caught us out. Uh, Digweed set the targets. Right. And he let it be known that he was going to set the targets for the uh great britain shoes and he did just that and i spoke to several of the team when they come back and they went holy shit you know some of that stuff was must have been doing 200 miles an hour with some distance on it so still i think digweed beat a lot of them with with uh with a lot of speed on targets over there um, and maybe in not all of them, but in some in some degree, a little bit of distance on it as well. Yeah. So, what was your question again? Well, all right. So, I was going to say, let's go back to the question: is is what is the most common mistake you see shooters make when you're reading the birds? Oh, okay. Um, taking a bird for granted—that's that's the common that's the common one. See, when you set when you set when you're setting targets, you've got the, two targets so immediately then you can determine whether it's going to be a report pair or true pair Mm -hmm. depending on how you've set the targets a report pair may be more difficult than a true pair so you'll see a lot of target setters if it's a report pair you can give some distance between two birds and what we call wrong foot the shooter so they'll set up and they'll just set up for that first target and that's the 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 uh, more experienced shooters don't do that. I mean, they they know they recognise it. But anyway, 
you know, the, the class shooters, they'll go, okay, I'm going to get this one. And they're totally wrong-footed for the second target, whether it be the report bird or the second bird of a true pair. So that's a classic. The other one is, again, throwing, uh, throwing the, the target uh, and throwing the top, top, higher bird first. So you force them to shoot the higher bird thereby covering up the lower bird with their barrel. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that will catch them out. Again, it doesn't catch the it doesn't catch the top shooters out because they know what they're doing. Uh, but that's something again that will um, put off or distract the different class shooters if they're not used to it, you know. So that's sort of what you can do to the shooter in the stand. Um, and then you come to all the different types of target that you can throw. Now, you know, having thrown targets, you get to learn which targets are going to be problematic. Let's say that, you know, um, we've got a national champion, for example, that lives in Texas, and I'm not going to mention any names. Mm-hmm. But uh, he hates, I hates is too strong a word. But he dislikes a quartering incomer from the right side at about head height that lands oh, 25 yards out. Now, to anybody else, it's straightforward. But for some reason, that particular shooter just, if he's going to miss one on the course, he might miss one of those. You know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. You know, I mean, you run through your mind and go, "All right, I know this guy and this guy and this guy is coming. Let's go and throw some of they don't want, something they don't like, just so we can." No, not at all. Okay. No, no, <laughs> no, no. Now, I don't. I don't think anybody, any target setter, will do that. I mean, you're too. You're concentrating on getting the set right and trying to uh, air present with you know and clearly for sport and you might have a score of 95 in your head that some of the top shooters will get you'll always get probably a top shooter that will shoot more than that you know um the other thing to do that we can that that i like to do to catch shooters out and uh, is is put a um put a trap hide a trap so that it's already got probably a third of its flight taken before you can see it mm-hmm. does that make sense to oh, you yeah. yeah i know exactly what you're talking about you know uh i set green course at nationals this year station two first target was from the left um standard target re- relatively slow speed close in the second target now i'd positioned the shooting cage to the side of a cedar bush Mm-hmm. So you could not see the second machine, which was a MIDI machine, set back a bit and probably at about 35 yards from the line of the shooter. So you fired the first one, you swung around expecting to see the other one, did not see it because it had to travel from behind. From your perspective, it was hidden by the cedar. When you did see it, it was starting to slow down. Bear in mind it was a MIDI it started to slow down, and at that point, it was actually turning away from you. Mm-hmm. So people still saw it as a MIDI on a fairly decent line, but it was slipping away from you. And I watched people shoot that, and 
shoot so far in front of it that, that they didn't they didn't know where they were. Right. So so you can catch people out by hiding machines, changing the flight path of the machine. You know, uh, not the machine, the target, um, by hiding it and covering up some of its flight path uh, with some sort of well, usually bushes or trees or something like that. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's um, you've you've really brought up a lot of good points of, you know, on how to how target presence presentations work, you know that that I've I don't really think about stuff like that, you know, hide the flight path of the bird. I mean, it's that, but that's all due to experience, you know, and that's that's a difference in the experienced target setter and a and a new one, really. Right. Yeah. So yeah, let me ask you this. Yeah. You got, you started a company called long range. Yeah. Tell me uh, how, why did you start or how did you start that? What made you want to start that? Uh, well, long range is, uh, uh, wireless releases, uh, voice controls for just for the shooting industry to release traps, uh, count targets. Right. Like the buttons you push when you, you know, when you call like, the, like the buttons you push. Right. Um, well, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't start it. I bought the company back in two thousand. Leading up to two thousand, um, there was a company. There, there was. There is a company called Long Range down in Dallas, Texas, and they used to make. A, an, an, and people have still got it. Uh, a lot of people know it. They used to make a release uh, to that you would plug into your uh, machine and press the button and release it. And I was selling some of that at the time, and I was getting it sent back because it would go wrong or whatever it might be. And um, so I would send it back down to Long Range in Texas, in Dallas, and say, uh, fix this there, i got something wrong with it, you know. And I would never hear anything back. And I phoned him up, Ken Lovejoy. That was uh, the – I think he was CEO. And um, Anyway, they were a little bit like me. They had been laid off from Texas Instruments back at the late 80s and started this company long range and they made uh, they made plug-in things for deer feeders so you could stand in your blind press a button and the feeder would go off and the deer would go god it's feeding time let's go <laughs> anyway um so i'd be sending this stuff back and i'd get nothing back for weeks and of course who i'd sold it to i go what, what's going on I, I you know so i'd call them like oh well you know, we started this pager business as well, um, and that's really taken off, and we just haven't had time to look after your stuff. Right. Oh. And it's funny because if you go into a lot of restaurants now, you know the square pager that's got the flashing lights on it? Yes. That, that, that You know, when you put your name down for a table, if you look on the underside of that, it probably says long range. So that's what they were doing. And a side note, oh, about five or six years ago, they sold that company, Ken did, uh, for $40 million. Wow. Wow. <laughs> but anyway, going back to 2000, so I, <laughs> what I said, I said, guys, you know, we're selling, we're selling this. It works okay. You know, let me buy, let me buy that portion of the company. So we negotiated with it. We bought that sort, that side of the company. I bought all their, uh, all the stuff that they had in stock. I negotiated to keep uh, the long range name because they'd been selling it as long range. Um, so I cut a long story short. I got that. We started to sell that and it was somewhat limited. Um, 
you could only operate 32 machines, which early on was fine. Um, so having an electronics background with IBM, I redesigned the whole lot and and then it, so it is what it is now. From 32 machines that uh, we could release then all at the same time, we can now release, if we wanted to, not you'd want to, uh, 4,064 machines all at the same time because of the way I designed the equipment. So you could push so, one, one button and 4,000 machines would go off if you wanted it to. If I wanted it to, I could make it do that, yes. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... So really, it was a it's a marriage made in heaven. You know, I'm, I mean, I like electronics. Electronics is my background and engineering is my background, electronics engineering uh, plus shooting. So uh, all the electronics that we make is geared to uh, the shooting industry. Um, and I keep developing new stuff as we go along. Um, one of the biggest things, you know, was the advent of our counter systems um, so that when people go out and shoot, they the the club owner actually gets paid for it. You know, it stops all that. Just throw me another pair, can you? I, just throw me another pair. Just throw me another pair. Yeah, okay, okay. Oh, how many targets did you shoot? Hundred. Right. Um, you know, so that stopped. That stopped all that, and we've developed that. We now use the same technology that, as you've got on your on your Google phone. Apple has just gone over to NFC. Um, technology that's this near field communications where you know you've got what's in essence a plastic card that's read by a, a device and um it counts your targets or you can prepay for targets uh, so that's that's that that's been a that's been a game changer i think for the shooting industry for clay for clay target clubs trap and skeet uh, sporting clays because uh, now you're guaranteed on getting paid for what you throw you know we I did early on. I did, uh, and this is amazing. I did uh, a study with a uh, with a, a local club to me when I was still in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. We did it over two weeks, and their loss loss was eighty percent. Wow! So for every hundred targets he was throwing, uh, every hundred targets he was getting paid for, he was throwing one hundred and eighty. That's, that's crazy. So, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Anyway, so that's that's the that's long range. It's uh, uh, and we're just we're just busy. We've got you know basically customers all over the world. Yeah. What do you have anything new coming out that might interest anybody? Oh, <laughs> well, it, in the new year, people have asked for voice releases for five stand. We get asked all the time because still with five stand, even though we've got wireless control and everything like that, um, <clears throat> they still have to pay an employee to sit there and press the buttons for five stand. And uh, so we're probably 95% uh, fixed on that. A, a voice release system for five stand so that the uh, shooters can come up Entering how many um, how many shooters in the squad? Three, for example, and then the device in front of them will flash. Okay, it flashes its shorter call pull, and it will throw the menu, uh, whatever the menu is, whatever you set the menu up, and uh, go along like that. So that's coming along. That will probably be released in uh, January, 
uh, a friend of mine, Ray Morris, has got one down in Tennessee. He takes it over to uh, Cross Creek. So he's been sort of beta testing it for me. Uh, it's working well. And I've got another one um, with my uh, dealer distributor in Australia. He's been testing it on a couple of grounds down there and they love it. He's already placed orders. I said, no, it's not. I haven't released it yet. You can't place orders. Well, I want nine of them when you get it done. So in the new year, that will be uh, that will be coming along. So if you've got five stands and you've got four people. Yeah. Okay. And if when it's set up and you punch your number of people shooting, the guy yeah. in the first box calls pull it, it throws him a one three or a whatever, and then yeah. and then it moves to the second box and show and throws a two four. Yeah. It does it automatically. It, just when you say pull, it knows what to yeah. shoot, what to throw. Wow, that's that's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah, and if you get a no bird, there's there's a no bird button on the box, and it will step back in the sequence and throw that pair or report pair again. And then the only thing that we ask is the last person in the squad, mm-hmm. when before you move stands, he'll get a solid green LED, and he presses the button that says change stands. Then they all move one to the right, obviously, um, and and. Um, the sequence was, you know, the sequence will start again um, with shooter one. Hmm. Interesting. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I like yeah. that. Yeah. So one, another thing I want to talk to you about is you used to have uh, a newspaper or a magazine. I don't know what you call it. Yeah. Um, tell tell me a little bit about that. Uh, th- this is going to get uh, this could get political now with the NSCA. Anyway, well, I'll, I'll tell you about it. And I can't remember the I can't, I can't remember the year. Uh, probably ninety six. Uh, at that time, what was it called? Um, the NSCA official publication. It wasn't Sporting Clays magazine. Damn, I should remember. Anyway, the magazine that was associated with the NSCA at that time. Jackie Miller, a great lady. She was the advertising editor on that, and I know it real well. Anyway, they were always two months late with shoot results or stories. And, of course, being the NSCA affiliate magazine, they they had to sugarcoat everything. Oh, yes, this was a great shoot. Well, no, it wasn't. Right. And nobody would say anything. Mm-hmm. So, so, so we started a newspaper. So it was newsprint in the form of a newspaper. And we had some writers and some of the writers are still about. Uh, I won't uh, mention their names because they might have real good jobs by now. Um, uh, and because it was newsprint, we could make the copy, send it to the printer and basically have it printed within three days. Right. Yeah, and we would be, and it was, yeah, we didn't charge anything. It was, I think it was $12 a year, but we were a bi-monthly, so every two months. And um, and it was great. And I got into terrible trouble with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> with the NSCA because, you know, I just say, hey, you know, it's, uh, it's what it is. I, I'm not affiliated with the NSCA, you know. And, uh, right, you're just a no-bull newspaper. Yeah. 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 And we, we print, you know, who won what and everything like that. And the 
we'd have write-ups and pictures and then we went to color and that was a big and we had some good advertisers browning beretta you know winchester and and so forth like that mm-hmm. um but it it damn it it just got so that it was a pain and of course um uh, brunton had come along at that point and his magazine was it's well it still is it's probably the best magazine out there the quality the content and so forth like that and um and so uh uh clay shoot in usa basically took over the masthead i we gave it to them uh you know with a list of our subscribers and so forth like that on the understanding that they would print the clay pigeon uh, masthead inside the inside their cover for five years which they did do it was fun i think we had it going for what three or four years something like that so you did this just to basically uh put the put what was really happening at the shoots out there instead of sugar-coated information yeah 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 so well what? yeah and it, but believe me it wasn't all bad but right you know that it's um you know if something if something's not right i believe in saying you know i i don't think i'd have done that like that maybe we ought to do it this way um and that's just me um you know hey there's nothing wrong with that you know we need we need more of that really i think that's my opinion but yeah not not about the sport just about in general you know just in general right right i mean the the sport is the sport's growing it's uh it's really it's really amazing how many people are taking up the sport you know and i think we're we're fortunate into uh, to have an organization like the nsca which is similar to the cpsa over in the uk um that sort of um organizes everything keeps everything in line you know our executive council does a great job of uh, rule changes uh, making decisions uh, running the thing i mean you know it's it's really a thankless job because it's the same as target setting. It's really a thankless job because somebody's going to complain. You know that, right? You know, oh, it's too hard. It was too easy. You know, um, but the NSCA does really a uh, really a good job uh, for the membership. You know, sure. um, um, but because you know the 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 NSCA membership is really minuscule compared to the recreational shooter. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and I guess we're fortunate, you know, the rate of attrition um, from uh, from the membership at the NSCA is as always most of the time is equal to new members coming in. So we stay somewhere between 25, 30,000 members of NSCA year on year. Right. Which, which is not bad, which is not bad. You know. No, but why, you know, I've, I've asked this question a hundred times. Why isn't it not any larger than that? 30,000. I mean, it just it blows my mind how it's not any bigger than thirty thousand or any. You know, I don't. How do you get it bigger? Well, you know, they offer uh, good deals on insurance and so forth like that. Uh, but still, you know, I think I believe typically uh, um, somebody coming into the sport will last in the NSCA probably four to five years. Um, and then they'll see that they, they're they not improving or um, they've made it to master class. Uh, 
you know, and there are far too many people in masterclass. They get to masterclass. Now they can go, I'm a masterclass shooter. And they, they now they don't necessarily give up shooting, um, but they just shoot recreationally. They'll go and shoot uh, their local clubs every week without fail. Um, it, and that's always a difficult question. How do we retain them longer? Yeah. Um, and I'm, you know, people with a lot more intelligent intelligence than me have sort of thought long and hard about that. And it's not an easy question to answer. No, it's not. You know, it's if they could, they would, you know, it's, right. it's one of those things. If, if they could retain them, right. they would retain them. So yeah. it's, you yeah. know, what you're saying is exactly right. You know, when you get, when you feel like you've accomplished something, saying get the master class, um, maybe it's over with for me. You know, because they know the sh- they know all the sharks are in master class. I'm never going to win anything again or whatever. But if they just keep practicing and trying, that you, you never know what will happen. Yeah, but, I mean that's right. You know, it's and I guess you get to um, you can reach certain levels. You know, in my shooting career, I won, and I can't remember what year it was. I think it was '94 English Open, mm-hmm. and then in '87 I shot for England. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 95, while I was here, I won what was at the time, I think it was the SCA at that time, I won their national championships at Addyville. You know, and that's, but I kept shooting through all those achievements um, because I love the sport um, until sort of target set took over. And then, you know, you can't set targets and shoot them at the same time. That's just a no no. Um, hey, let me ask you a question. Stop right there. What do you think you could do on your targets you set? Do you think you could shoot them well? No. <laughs> think you'd have a problem with them yourself, huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's uh, well. See, that's a double-edged question. There, I mean, uh, um, I, I, I think I would be okay. Would I beat you know the 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 Derek Mines and uh, Zach's and no, right. no, because I was never that level of shooter. Um, you know, but, uh, could I be middle of the pack? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, you know, I don't shoot. I got a bad shoulder. I just, um, you know, it's, if I not while COVID is on, but if I go back to the UK, you know, I still take the gun out and I'll shoot some wood pigeons or crows. Or, well, actually that's banned now, I think over there, but I, I can go out and shoot rabbits, you know, and uh, I love shooting rabbits. You know, we went out shooting one night over there and we drive, drive around in a pickup truck shooting rabbits and we shot 444 rabbits in one night. What? Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen 444 in my entire life. Yep. And filled the back of the pickup up. Wow. Yep. And that's just in the headlights around typically grass fields or obviously stubble fields, you know, after the harvest. Uh, yeah. two, two of us, a uh, young lad in the back running out to pick them up as you shoot them. And um, you drive down the hedgerow, you know, with the headlights on, and typically they'll be out and they'll run into the hedgerow. And they're just pretty good crossing shots, I tell you. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's a, I bet, that's that a was, I bet that was fun. You mentioned the SCA a minute ago. Except, yeah. What was that? Um, I think there's a USSCA you'd mentioned also. 
Correct. Uh, USSCA started off, and I don't know when. I don't know when it started off. It was before I came over because the team that I, when I met Andy Duffy, they were shooting for the USSCA team. FICAS being a French organization, initially they were affiliated with USSCA. So the shoot at Akimo Mountain was nothing to do with the NSCA at that time. It was USSCA. And that was run by a guy called Bob Davis. And um, it really it really sort of got hold uh, in the in, in the early 90s typically up in the northeast um had classification system stuff like that mm -hmm. but the biggest draw was of course it was affiliated with fitas after a chemo mountain there's two guys uh ben baldridge and uh timmy nichols and they set some really fantastic fitas targets and we had three shoot three shoots after that, one on Mount Tom, one on Hunter Mountain. <laughs> it was the third one. Maybe they weren't the third one, where uh Nichols and Baldridge would set the targets. So and that they were just amazing shoots. They were up on mountains where well at the chemo we used to get the uh, ski chairlift to go up to the parkour to shoot and that was just uh, amazing and anyway and i don't know what happened you know all these things get political you know that after ussca it became sca uh, sporting plays of america under fred collins again up in the northeast um and then that changed at some point to uh, the guy in Ohio, Ron Blosser, mm -hmm. and then just disappeared. I don't know where it went or, or you know, it, it, it just disappeared. Then it just went away? Yeah. Yeah, just went away. And then the SCA was what? Just a spinoff of that or what? Yeah, yeah. And I don't know why the net – it got into people suing people, you know, USSCA oh, yeah. was owned by Bob Davis and uh, somebody else wanted to take it over. Well, you can't call it USSCA, otherwise I'll sue you. Okay, we'll call it SCA, Sporting Clays of America. Same thing, same rules, same shoots. Um, you, you know, um, and I, I don't really know what happened, but in the Northeast here, uh, USSCA and SCA was really strong. It was really strong and up and coming organization. Right. And it just, yeah. okay. Well, now we're back to just the NSCA, I guess. Right. Well, the NSCA really took off and did a tremendous job. Um, uh, a real good friend of mine, Pete Mash, that is now facilities manager down in San Antonio. Um, Mike Hampton put him on a truck with oh, making it up 30 machines. Uh, a big semi 18 wheeler and uh pete's mate uh jimmy reed so they started traveling all over the country setting targets jimmy concentrated more on five stands he had a smaller uh, uh truck i believe but pete had 30 machines and i remember uh, me and pete became real close because we would set targets together it would be i don't know it was 
one of them was early on at George Hopkins's where we were setting targets and people turn in with the 18 wheeler with 35, 40 machines on and we'd unload it and set targets and stuff like that. By them going round to all parts of the country, it really gave a, a, a tremendous injection of sporting clays into really what were trap and skeet clubs at the time, mm-hmm. you know, right. um, and that really pushed sporting clays along and of course helped NSCA because, you know, Oh, you, you want to put a shoe on? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, whatever. Okay. We'll send the truck. He's free that weekend. Um, there'll be 40 machines, whatever it was on there. Um, so a lot of these places could actually set up really good shoots right from the word go without having all the equipment to do it. So the NSCA did a really good job early on. There's no doubt about that. That's how they started. I guess the skeet people at some stage says, okay, you know, what is this sporting clays thing? You know, um, do we need to be involved? And I, you know, somebody said, yes. And uh, Mike Hampton had the fortitude to go, okay, if we're going to get into it, we need to get into it in a real fashion. That's what prompted um, uh, um, Mike Hampton to put, you know, a couple of guys on the road to introduce sporting plays to all the different clubs over the country, uh, which were or could have been trap and skeet clubs at the time. So they were part of NSSA, um, could now go, okay – I need to see what this sporting clays stuff is. I'll do a hundred bird shoot. Okay. Here's 40 machine or 35, whatever it was. Um, and that's what kickstart sporting clays in this, in this country. You see, you have to bear in mind that sporting clays was here. Had been in the U S uh, since the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, I managed to get hold of a flyer. And I want to say it was dated 81 for a sporting clay shoot at the Remington Gun Club in in Connecticut. Okay. And, in the flyer, and the flyer actually said sporting clays on it. So, you know, and there's, there's other people that have told me that, oh, yeah, we shot sporting clays in 85 or whatever. Um, so although it was – it was really slowly catching on at that time. It caught on obviously by um, 88, 89 when the USSCA, because they said, okay, we're going to send a club, a club, a team over to, um, to the world championships. Right. So when, when Mike Hampton came on board and, and said, okay, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it properly. That's what, that, that's why we are where we are today. There is no doubt about that. Well, cool. That's that's neat. Um, I didn't know that. Yeah. So, so yeah. well, let me ask you this: Where are you going to set targets at next? Well, I've got quite a busy year coming up. Uh, you know, I backed off tremendously. I, one time a day, I was away from home, oh, probably eight months of the year. So, uh, first one is we've got the uh, Texas State shoot that was put off from last year. That's in April down at NSCA in San Antonio. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we've got the U.S. Open in June at um, Claythorne out in Kansas. Mm-hmm. Now, there's another neat club. You know, I met Sam and Frieda at River Road in 1996. And um, 
have been really, really good friends with them ever since. Anyway, we met and they went, hey, you know, we're just getting into the sporting clothes thing and um, will you come and help us? And um, so I said, yeah, of course I will. And they flew me out to uh, to uh, Kansas there and I was just taken back. The pro- You haven't been there, I don't suppose, Justin, but no, the property no. is, uh, it's an old, it's an old strip pit where they would dig down 80 feet for eight foot of coal. So he's got pits on there that are long, narrow pits with the earth out of the pit mounded up along the side of the pit, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So uh, when went out there and they had one course in and uh, I helped design uh, – you know, a couple more courses and suggested places where we could put other different courses. And I've been great friends with them. And of course, we've had two or three US Opens there. We've had uh, World Fit House Championships there. Um, it, just a great, uh, just a great shooting ground there. I guess I'll see it this year or next year, whichever one you want to call it. Yeah. Are you going there? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so then, then uh, we've got the what would it be South Central Regional at um, at Covey Rise, mm-hmm. um, and then then that's September, and then back to nationals in uh, October. Some big shoots for you there, huh? Yeah, yeah. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, I, I've learned a, a lot from just being you being a target setter. And the history of a lot of this stuff has really been interesting to me. So I appreciate you coming on and and sharing that with us. 